So I'm speaking today with Carl Hanlon, running for Colorado's Senate District 8. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate being here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. What would you say are some of the most pressing issues for this northwestern corner of the state? So large district, very diverse. We go from the mountain communities and mountain resort communities in Summit and Route counties. Uh, We've got ag all the way through it. And then obviously the counties and towns and communities out in the more westerly portion that are uh, in the middle of a transition on an energy economy. So it's a very diverse place. You know, I think on top of mind for everybody right now, uh, and certainly probably wasn't when I got into the race, but has become the topic is how we're addressing the pandemic, how we're recovering from that, uh, what the risks are associated with it, and what can we do both at the local and the state level to address that. Because obviously, things are a lot different in, say, Moffat County or Rio Blanco County, where you're at, than they are over in Summit County or in Garfield County, where you have more resort communities Uh, different sets of issues that that are being faced. So, you know, that's kind of the overarching thing, but tied into all of that, we have to address some economic issues related to climate change and how we're addressing that. We have affordable housing issues all through the district. You know, as we go into the fall and everybody's starting to look at their insurance renewals again, healthcare continues to be a pressing issue for us. And then finally, you know, and kind of ties to that first one is public lands, honestly, that really run throughout the district. And and frankly, so much of our economy is tied to whether it's the extraction industries or it's the resort communities are all wrapped up in public land. So those are really the issues that I've been focusing on and the ones that I'm hearing about when I'm out in the district right now. I guess before we get into specific issues, could you just tell me a little bit about your personal background, history, professional experience, and how those aspects of your life have led you to uh, the point you're at today and sort of your platform that you're running on? So I grew up on a working cattle ranch in Jackson County, north of Walden. And, you know, my parents were depression era kids. I kind of skipped a generation. I'm a Gen Xer, uh, technically. Uh, They were World War II generation, and they really instilled in me uh, a commitment to both hard work, but also to helping your neighbors. And that's, that's been a core value for not only myself, but my family uh, forever. Um, I uh, went to the University of Wyoming. I worked as a park ranger here in Colorado for about four years as a seasonal ranger. Um, I actually, in that role, I uh, went to the academy to train up in Rangeley, Colorado. So I spent 16 weeks there uh, in the early 90s. And uh, from there, I I realized that I really wanted to have a bigger impact uh, in in the outdoors and in the environment. So I went on to law school out at Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon, and knew I wanted to come back to the mountains to practice law. And I really wanted to practice water law. And and back when I started, you wanted to be next to the court because that was still important before all the electronic filings and everything. And so Glenwood Springs was a seat of Water Division 5, which is the water division that uh, in the state of Colorado is responsible for the Colorado River Basin. And so I came back to start practicing water law. I didn't know if I'd be able to afford to stay here for a long time, but ended up, this ended up being home and and has been for close to 25 years now. Uh, Along the way, I, I, as any attorney out in, you know, kind of rural Colorado, you start, you, you do more than just that one thing. And I ended up 
uh, representing a lot of municipalities, um, working on a variety of issues from economic development to water rights to, to land use to just anything that they needed. And uh, as we roll through the fall, my, uh, my daughter is turning 20 and it's been 20 years since I've been working with the city of Glenwood Springs uh, in various capacities as their attorney. Uh, really proud of that history. I also uh, represent, personally represent the town of Silverthorne uh, and general counsel um, for uh, Grand Junction Airport uh, and represent a number of special districts. And my law firm works really with a, a number of municipalities on the West Slope. So all of that really has led me uh, to this real commitment to community and the importance of, of doing things locally and really understanding uh, and enjoying uh, and admiring the work that, that happens at the local level to achieve uh, the visions that communities have for themselves. On the personal side, I served on the school board here in the Roaring Fork School District for a couple of years. Um, my wife and I, about five years ago, started a nonprofit called Smiling Goat Ranch. We work with kids with autism and veterans with PTSD, uh, with horses and other social animals. And that has really blossomed into a really important part of our lives and, and really serving a, a great need in the community uh, in both those areas. Um, so along with that, uh, we were talking before the interview started that I also serve on the Aspen Public Radio Board. Um, so a long history of, of community involvement and commitment. And that really led me to where I am today, which is a real desire to see representation at the state level that is tied deeply and deeply rooted in the rural parts of Colorado uh, and that understands what it means to be part of here and take that down to Denver and advocate and fight hard for those values that are important for us, those issues that we are facing, because frankly, it is different for rural, uh, rural Colorado or rural America. The way these issues arise for us, the way we have to deal with them, their impact on us is very different. A great example would be like in Craig, where I, I believe they, they no longer have a maternity ward. And so that means a long travel, even if you live in Craig, to have your baby for a family to welcome a new member. Things like that are just different out here. The space, the, the distances, and also the economic factors that we face are all just different. And so it's, I think it's important to have somebody who gets that, who's been there, who's worked on the ground and understands how those impact us down at the state legislature. You mentioned a motivation to get into water law. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that came from the ranching background. It absolutely did. I mean, water is water is everything out here if you're an ag. Some of my earliest memories are trying to stretch the water as far as it'll go in the dry years and trying to figure out what to do with it uh, when you're trying to dry out the hayfield in the wet years. And it's just the core of who we are out here, really. I mean, it, it, it defines us in so many ways. It helps us with our successes and it, you know, I, I, when I talk to people about issues, and we'll talk about climate in a little bit, but like on our ranch, uh, we're at about 8,000 feet. And when I was growing up, an 80-degree day was hot, and now we see them in the 90s regularly all summer long. The stream that we rely on for water always ran water all summer long when I was young, and that hasn't happened except in the wettest of years since then. And definitely that changed those droughts in 2002 and 11 and you know, last year and the year before huge impact on us. And so that just ties us to the land. And so that really was my desire to go into water law. And it was an area that uh, I knew that I, I loved and I understood and I could make a difference in. How do we then in Northwest Colorado come to grips with 
these environmental effects that we're talking about, whether it's water, fires, just general heat or whatever else. And also, I guess, what role should we play in the broader global issue that is climate change? Truly, so much of what we can do as individuals and as a country starts out in rural America. It is where the extraction industries are for uh, our current energy needs. It is where we're growing food for America. It's where we're raising the cattle. It's the public lands that everybody has in their mind that they want to go and see and be part of. And so how we make that transition is really important. The other thing we're seeing, and I, I need to preface all of this with, I think this issue has been played too much as it's either climate change or your livelihood. It's been kind of created as a wedge issue that doesn't necessarily need to exist. You know, markets are changing. We see the crash in the natural gas market, regardless of regulatory loosening or changes or exemptions. Uh, you know, the energy markets are changing and, and they're shifting away from fossil fuels, be it coal or natural gas. You know, if you look at, say, what Excel did down in Pueblo with Comanche 1 and 2, they're taking those coal plants offline and they're not replacing them with natural gas. They're replacing them with renewables and they're doing that not because it's a regulatory drive. They're doing that because it makes financial sense to them and in large measure because their consumers are demanding that they do that. When you roll all that together, uh, we have to respond to what the market's doing and how we respond to that is, is super important. As much as a lot of elected officials are trying to postpone that or create a narrative around why it's happening, the reality is it's happening. And the best thing we can do is look forward to the future. Where we can go with that are really looking to those local communities for the guidance on, on how we can have that impact. As we lose that industry, uh, if you look at, say, Craig, they've done a great job with envisioning a new plan for their community and where they're going. The county has worked on that as well. That's going to be a combination of new energy um, in the form of you know, renewables or non-carbon based, at least, you know, attracting new industry, focusing on public lands and what that can bring into the mix. So when you think about the enormous impact that a community like Northwest Colorado can have, they can have a real impact on how the country changes and how the world changes by the choices they make and by demonstrating that it's possible to do that. That having been said, when we make that transition, and one of the reasons why, uh, in particular, labor has come out very supportive of me in this election cycle is even though I put climate change as the first thing on my website, I'm also the first person to say that as we bring those new industries online in places uh, in, in Rio Blanco or Moffat County, I expect us to hold them to a higher standard than we certainly did the extractive industries in how they treat their workers and whether those are good paying union jobs, whether those are benefited jobs. That's not a market anymore that is, uh, it's not 1970s, we're not working out of the garage trying to put up some solar panels. These are big multinational companies that are doing this work. We shouldn't let them get away with not protecting their workers, not providing the benefits that they should receive. Those jobs that are gonna be lost at the, the power plant should be replaced with jobs that are similarly well-benefited and well-paid. And we can do that. We absolutely can do that, but we just have to, we have to hold people's feet to the fire and hold corporate America's feet to the fire to do it right. Okay, nice. Yeah, I was going to ask you about um, the sort of economic transition, but you 
I think, got into it uh, pretty well, specifically around the extraction industries. You know, you mentioned transitioning to some newer energy, uh, like renewable energy as part of an economic transition. What other industries or... uh, I know you mentioned public lands. Are there any other industries that you think this district could sort of move towards in an economic transition, like maybe some of the stuff that Craig is doing or any of these other counties, aside from energy, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think there's a number of things that, that we could be doing. And a lot of those, if you look to the, to the skilled workers that we're going to have uh, and the infrastructure that's in place, you know, between trains and, and an airport over in Hayden and the workers that we're going to have, you can look to uh, a variety of kind of boutique manufacturing that could be done, that we have the workforce, the energy, the place uh, to do it. And, you know, I look to businesses like um, Stone Age Tools down in Durango, and Durango is not really close to anything. And they have a fantastic business down there that has grown over the years doing high-tech uh, cleaning and cutting water, water pressure-based cleaning and cutting tools that they manufacture. And so there are those kinds of opportunities, I think, that are out there. And I think one of the things we lose sight of is that there are probably a lot of people in these communities, whether it's Meeker or Rangeley or Craig, who have a lot of great ideas about what they could be doing, but maybe they need a little bit of capital to get started. They need a little bit of help with planning. Um, they, you know, they have the will and the knowledge to get there. We need to figure out how we can help them do that. Because I think one of the mistakes we make is chasing large corporations around thinking that's going to be our savior, whether that's in the extraction industry or otherwise, when we need to start with the people that we have and find out what their vision is for themselves. And if it's the, you know, help them be successful instead of trying to impose some top-down kind of approach to all of this. So, yeah, for example, I guess one of those types of infrastructure improvements that's been made in Rio Blanco County is broadband internet, which is pretty interesting thing to have in such a remote area when it's not even something that can be found in a lot of the country. So would that be an example? It sure would be. And, you know, I have a long history of working on Uh, broadband projects. One of the first things I did for the city of Glenwood Springs was help them put in uh, one of the first uh, municipal broadband systems in the state back in the early 2000s. So it absolutely can be a game changer for a community. Um, And it is uh, definitely a piece of the puzzle to help support those local businesses that want to grow and change. Sometimes I think people think about it as just a mechanism whereby you get people to move from, say, the front range to Meeker to work out of their house. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case. And I'll go back to, to Stone Age Tools, who, when the city of Durango said, do you want, do you want water supplied to your facility or, would you, or broadband, which is more important? And they said broadband, uh, because that's how they communicated with the people in the outside world that they sell to and how they made themselves as productive and efficient uh, and global as possible. And I think Meeker is, and in, in, uh, Rio Blanco County is part of the Thor project, if I can remember correctly, that is um, in part funded by um, Department of Local Affairs funds. Uh, great project, um, one that uh, I'm working on uh, on behalf of a couple of different clients that are, that are along that 
redundant route that they're getting out there. So it's a it's a great tool, um, but I think we need to not think of it as the end of the conversation, but as the beginning. So speaking of Rio Blanco County, you've been spending some time here recently, uh, I guess noting that experience so far, as well as, you know, whatever uh, past experience you have. Has any issue in particular stood out to you? Maybe you've already mentioned it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what was on the mind of really everybody I talked to is what's going on economically. Um, how, do, how do those policies affect them? Is Denver or D.C. really thinking about them? And I think the answer is not the way they should. And that's part of what I want to bring to the table is we need to, you know, we need to be advocating harder for our rural communities. And on that economic issue, you know, it's going to be a tough year in Colorado. Uh, we know that um, it has been a tough year already. It's going to be a tough budget year for the state. It's going to be a tough budget year for counties and school districts looking at 2021, um, even as bad as 2020 was. So, you know, focusing on that recovery piece um, is is on everybody's mind. I, I had a great conversation. I, I was dropping a piece of literature off and a uh, gentleman was uh, in, in Meeker, um, you know, he, he works at the coal mine. His son-in-law just has lost his job in the gas fields, you know, it, tough conversation and, and was not, uh, wasn't super fond of Democrats or democratic policies, but was kind enough on a sunny Sunday morning to, to chat with me about what his concerns were. And if we can, if we can start there, we can find a path forward that'll work for all of us. Speaking of the sort of economic impacts that we're seeing as a result of COVID-19, what do you think the state has done correctly? Uh, what do you think the state should continue to do? Or uh, what what is new that they should do to, I guess, to take care of people as we're still in the middle of a pandemic? Like we're not out of the woods yet necessarily. You know, I think the I think the the thing that the legislature can be doing is, is one, listening to the diversity of opinions on the ground. And, and those opinions aren't, aren't necessarily just political. Those are differences of opinions because of place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Meeker is not Aurora. And so as we think about what we can do to help communities, I think it's critical that we keep that in mind, that the ability of uh, Aurora or Denver or, Castle Rock to recover is very different than Meeker or Rangeley because of size and population and place. We have to focus on those communities more heavily, I think, uh, in particular in the education funding side. You know, we are at the bottom of the list now in education funding before the pandemic. Everybody's talking about how much additional money is going to be cut. And just frankly, we have to prioritize that because the long-term impacts of what we're doing to our schools before the pandemic was significant. During the pandemic, it is absolutely critical. And these, these school districts and teachers and administrators have risen to the occasion in, in remarkable ways, uh, but they need more. They need more financial support. And I think prioritizing that in this legislative session is critical. Most of the legislative next legislative session is all going to be about budget. 
Um, I think we have to focus on, on health and welfare. The other piece that we need to focus on is making sure that folks in, in my district have access to good quality healthcare. And that is something that we have struggled with. Um, there were a couple of different bills on, the, on trying to get to the floor when the pandemic hit that never really got um, deeply discussed and got set aside until this next session. Uh, whether that is talking about a public option, talking about prescription drugs, talking about transparency, we need to get back to doing that. It's going to be hard and uncomfortable, but we have to get, uh, we have to make progress on that. So for me, it's health and welfare and education. Those are where we need to focus our energy. But it means talking to communities like Meeker or Rangeley or Craig or, you know, Glenwood or Rifle, any of these communities about what their needs are, rather than thinking we know what they are sitting in the Capitol in, in Denver. So just real quickly on the healthcare stuff, obviously we have some pretty high costs in this region um, and the state, but you know, the Western Slope I know has very high costs uh, for healthcare. So I guess just real quickly on that, I w- was wondering if you had any specific policies that you like or other ideas you've heard for addressing cost. Yeah, I, you know, I think, well, you know, and it's funny because I, it, we're getting into that time of the year where I'll be renewing health insurance for, uh, um, for my, uh, my business. Um, and so I was just on the Colorado exchange to see what the, you know, we do a group policy here, but what individual policies look like. And, uh, you know, the cheapest policy in Garfield County is $1,800 a month with a $8,000 deductible, 16,000 out of pocket, that's for a family plan. No prescription drug coverage until you hit the deductible, um, basically no coverage until you hit the deductible. So, you know, 2,000 a month plus another 500 a month if you're getting to, or whatever that number is, more than 500, 800 a month to get to your deductible. We just can't sustain that and so for me, getting a public option on the table is critical. You know, the Affordable Care Act was designed around the idea that there would be competition in the marketplace. And that's a great example where policymakers didn't understand that it's different in rural America. And so to me, one of the most pressing needs we have is to bring those, those prices down and whether it's statewide or not, I, out here in the rural parts of the state, we have to have access to a public option. Having said that, we also need to be careful about what that does to our rural hospitals, and they're going to need support as well through that process, you know, because the, the model has become so dependent on uh, elective procedures and the costs that, you know, the prices that they get for that and, and what the reimbursements look like that we need to be careful about that as, as we push forward on a, on a public option. But right now, I think that's the best, the best path forward. We also need to take a hard look at transparency so that you really understand what you're paying for. And so that providers have to make it clear what you're paying for and, and address pres- prescription drug prices. I was happy to see the change in, uh, you know, the capping of insulin costs when you think that, you know, 20 years ago, a vial of insulin was $40 and now it's four, five, six, seven hundred dollars and it's that same bottle of insulin. We have to we have to take act, regulatory action to make that happen. because uh, out here we're just getting caught in the middle. And public lands, 
you know, I grew up in Rio Blanco County, uh, in camping and hiking and doing all sorts of activities in the flat tops wilderness area. Um, public lands are very valuable to me, something that I cherish. And I know a lot of my fellow residents feel the exact same way about them. Um, however, they utilize those public lands. I guess with that context, in a general sense, how do legislators protect these lands that constituents of the district cherish? And I guess a real specific exa- example of this discussion that I know you can speak to is with the Glenwood Springs uh, proposed quarry expansion. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. You know, it's tough because obviously, um, but you know, the primary motivators legislatively to protect those public lands are our federally elected officials. And so it, it definitely is a little bit different conversation when you're talking at the state level. But I, I think what you can do is you strengthen the regulatory authority at the state level that you have concurrent ju- jurisdiction on. Um, you know, and I, I can, I'll talk to the, to the quarry in Glenwood here in a second and, and why that's so important. But, it, you know, that idea of sort of local control and concurrent jurisdiction between the state and the county and the local municipalities on those public lands is absolutely critical to communities, you know, like out in Rio Blanco County, access to the flat tops, um, making sure that the values that are important to those local communities are being heard, listened to, and respected by the federal agencies. And so when you look at what's going on in Glenwood and for the benefit of the the listeners and readers, there's a proposal to expand a limestone quarry um, right outside of of Glenwood Springs from about 15 acres to um, four or 500, expanding that operation to 24 hours a day, 500 trucks a day coming down the down the the roads, um, a loadout in the middle of town with an idling train 24 hours a day, and the possibility that it could um, actually impact the the hot springs aquifers that are a big part of Glenwood Springs, who they are and and what their economy is built around. And the operator has essentially filed suit in federal and state court and said, look, you just don't have any local local jurisdiction over this. That's one of the one of the claims that they are making uh, when the, the county, Garfield County, uh, issued a uh, notice of violation regarding their current operations on the 15 acres. And so it's it's turned into a real fight. And that is a great example of the owner of the mine is the son of one of the most powerful natural resource lobbyists in the in the country. The Secretary of Interior used to work for that lobbying firm, and you have a community caught in the crossfire where literally thousands of residents have signed up um, on the the Glenwood Citizens Alliance, along with hundreds of businesses in opposition to this, and they are still grinding forward, and we're still fighting that in both, you know, I'm leading the legal team on the fight in court, as well as uh, fighting it politically, and you know, that's that's a great example where it's just all hands on deck. And so we have asked to to make sure that there are, you know, sufficiently strong state level regulations on that concurrent jurisdiction 
to help protect us because on the federal side, there's enormous pressure on the agencies to move this project forward. And the local office is doing their job, but it is a tough environment to, to work in. And so we have to have those tools in place or we're all going to, you know, those public lands are for all of us. They're not for corporate America. So that's the heart of it. And as a legislator, making sure that we don't lose those protections that we can put in place is critical. All right. So I guess I'd like to wrap it up with talking about water. And we talked about do you have a an hour. Do you have an hour or two? <laughs> I get a little geeky on water. That's fine. No, it's interesting to me. I know we already talked about it a little bit, um, but I guess just given your past knowledge and experience and some of the future projections for snowpack and stream flows, um, how do you think that we ought to prepare for a future with less water? What sort of proposals do you like, policy or otherwise, and why do you like the why do you like them? Yeah, so. I, you know, I think it's become clear as the modeling has gotten better um, that we are facing a future with far less water. And so traditionally what we've done is tried to adjust the, the timing of when we get that water through storage projects. And I do think that some storage projects continue to have uh, purpose and relevance for us, uh, but we need to be careful about uh, thinking that, that somehow those can um, make up for a deficit, a long-term deficit in, in the amount of water we're seeing. And you can look to the struggle we have filling Powell or Mead out of the Colorado River as evidence of that as, it, as these cyclical dry years get closer and closer together in drought, it becomes harder and harder to rely on just storage as the answer to everything. So one of the things that we're really realizing in, in our district and on the West Slope is that the importance of stream health and how that relates, frankly, to our economies. Not only do um, ranchers rely on that water, you know, for their hay meadows or or farther, you know, farther out or down the river uh, farming operations. It's a it's a big part of the the recreation industry and why people come here and why people want to be part of Northwest Colorado and and the West Slope. So, thinking a lot about stream health and how do we keep more water in the streams at critical times. And so encouraging policies that allow uh, water rights owners to do that without penalty or in such a way that that it is, um, you know, if it's a if it's a question of following, which I'll talk about why that's a struggle for a rancher, as, as you know, as a hay farmer, you know, whether it's rotational following, whatever that is to try to keep those in at, at critical times. And a great example of that is a, a pilot project that I'm working with up in Grand County. Uh, trying to to shift timing of some diversions so that we can get more water into the Fraser at low flow times and increase flow and, and lower stream temps, right? So those kinds of policies that help us do that and encourage that are are really important. Um, I I think that what I you know you don't want to see is is simply relying on buy and dry as the solution on the East Slope uh, to their problems with water supply. And I think we need to be more aggressive about protecting. I, you know, I was part of the CRC, the Colorado River Cooperative Agreement negotiations that limited and capped Denver's take. But there are a lot of other 800-pound gorillas over there that we need to deal with, like Aurora. And we have to be more aggressive about protecting what we have. 
you know, at all levels, efficiencies are important and encourage and modeling that to make that happen. And I wanted to loop back to following for a minute because the problem obviously with with a rancher following hay ground is that you still have a herd of cows and they still need to eat. And so if you take your hay, hay out of production, that means you're going to have to get rid of some of the cows and you get kind of into this cycle of, does that really take you where you want to go? And uh, that's one of the toughest nuts to crack, I think, for us in, in, uh, in SD8 uh, is because the type of ag- agriculture we practice is not as susceptible to rotational fallowing as say it is it is on the east slope where you might be able to do that to to spread out the the wealth of water so you know i think it's a combination of probably small targeted storage projects uh working on stream health and that goes a lot to to environmental flows and improving the riparian riparian areas around our streams uh, because we're seeing what a positive impact that can have. And you can look at um, some of the projects like uh, up in Summit County, 10 Mile Creek, I think is one of them that has done a really great job of dealing with a a mine, you know, reclamation project. All of those things improve both quality and quantity and availability to the rest of us. And then looking at municipal systems, and here's a great example of where the state, uh, as we look at um, coming out of this economic place we're at now, where, where funding is so limited, uh, you know, improving uh, the efficiency and the quality of municipal systems, um, everything from the pipes in the ground to the to the treatment facilities to the uh, wastewater treatment can have a real impact for all of us on there again, quantity and quality. So all of those things are things we can be working on together or as a package and certainly working on together as a populace to to improve. You know, one of the things I worry a little bit about is that uh, the Yampa and the White are not as overappropriated as the Colorado is, and everybody's looking to them to be the next big solution. And I think we we need to push back. Those rivers are important, and they're important in the conditions they're in. And we need to be careful about allowing you know a big pipe to run from an off you know an off-channel storage off the Yampa all the way over to Fort Collins. Like, is that really in the interest of SDA? You mentioned some small storage projects. I don't know. In, in Rio Blanco County and the White River specifically, there's been all this hubbub about the Wolf Creek, mm-hmm. Reser- uh, Wolf Creek right. Reservoir. I guess, what's your take on that? And I, I, the reason I wasn't sure how, whether to talk about it as small or not is because it's just like such a wide-ranging proposal. Um, but what's your take yeah, on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of hard. I, I, I think until it, it really becomes something more clear on whether, you know, where, where that kind of lands on what that exactly is. I guess I'd rather talk in more general terms about the types of the types of projects that I think are important. Um, when you talk about municipal supply resiliency in particular, um, some small scale score, small scale storage, a few thousand acre feet that support and provide buffering for municipal systems. Those are more of the kinds of projects that I was talking about. We're not, I don't, I think we're the likelihood of seeing another Wolford Reservoir uh, or a Green Mountain or a Dillon is far less likely than it was even 15 years ago. And I think the value of those large scale projects uh, on that scale, I, I think is more questionable now, given all of the, the other impacts they have, if it's really the right, the right direction to go. Um, but some small scale, you know, trying to provide some <clears throat> resiliency and some backup water to some of these smaller municipalities, you know, that has 
that has a lot of value or, or helping out an irrigation company or something like that that has been relying on direct flows and needs to retime a little bit. I think those kinds of projects still have still have value for us. Um, those large scale ones are, are harder to, to think of how they benefit the West Slope or SD8 uh, versus how they benefit front range interests. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap it up here and how do voters get in touch or yeah, learn about your absolutely. platform? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you can go to Carl Hanlon. It's Carl with a K, uh, carlhanlon.com. Uh, probably more active is uh, social media, which is Hanlon for CO on across all the platforms, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. This has been an interesting campaign year. Um, it is tough because uh, you know there are group limitations. You want to be careful about um, how you're contacting and, and interacting with voters. You know, we're I'm trying very hard to get out in the district as much as I possibly can. It's a big district. Um, we've been on this kind of um, caravan tour. I've been pulling the camper around and staying out across the district. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's um, that's kind of it. We're just, uh, you know, I'm trying to get out there. I'm trying to listen more than talk if I can. And, you know, just really want to take that take that advocacy down to down to Denver and see if we can't actually make some real change for a difference out here in, in rural Colorado. Great. Well, once again, uh, speaking today with Carl Hanlon running for Senate District 8 in Colorado. Thanks for your time today, Carl. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It was, a, it was a great chat and uh, looking forward to more of them.